The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. I'd like for us to read this text, and then I'll get into the comments for today's message. If you were here for the last Sunday afternoon for the forum class, you got a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to say today. Uh, This portion of scripture is part of the upper room discourse that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. These were his last teachings, and importantly, they deal with the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised would come to live in them and be his spirit in them. Now, we have uh, for our text the 7th through the 14th verses, but I'd like you to bear with me just a little bit longer. I'm going to read a little more scripture than that. I want you to go back up into the 15th chapter, and we'll start at verse number 26, and then we'll read down to verse number 16, Acts 15, verse number 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father." Now, we are blessed to open the Word of God today to, I would say, perhaps the most comforting words that Jesus could have spoken to his disciples with his impending death the next day. At least 11 of the men that he chose to be his apostles had come to love him dearly, and I know that's especially true of the three that were closest to him, that is Peter, James, and John. And it seems most appropriate that we would read these words from the Gospel of John, that John would be the author of them because he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
I have no authority to say any of the disciples felt otherwise. They all loved Jesus. All this was spoken to them, all of them, without exception. Uh, well, one exception, and that would be Judas Iscariot. Each of these men loved Christ, and all but John became martyrs for the gospel. This is a comforting text. The Holy Spirit is called here the Comforter. He is the paraclete, the paracletos. He's the consoler. He is an advocate. He's the supplying provider for each of us in the, in the difficulties of our Christian life. And while he's always here to help us, this, this comment stands juxtaposed to the unholy treatment that the Holy Spirit receives at the hands of those who misrepresent him. Now today we're studying the Spirit of Christ. We continue this series. And I would ask you to hold on to the thoughts that I give you today because it it will be towards the end of October before we take up the subject again. Uh, Let me give you the heading for the topic of the morning message. Uh, We've just had, or just finished part number three of our outline, The Holy Spirit is God's Agent. And our first three topics that we've discussed thus far are the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is deity, and the Holy Spirit is God's agent. Today we change to a different topic, and our fourth observation is that the Holy Spirit is abused. The Holy Spirit is abused. He is a person. He is deity. We gave much attention to his agency and how he works in the world today. We had seven messages on that glorious part of his ministry that brought us to the heights of this statement. As one author said, the essential, vital, central theme in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Holy Spirit. And in the past nine messages, we've had a good opportunity to learn more about this person in the Trinity. Now, we often say that Christianity is Christ, and most Christians know a good deal about Christ. We know about him because he came into the world to be a sacrifice for our sins. We're most familiar with John 3.16, God so loved the world, and go on with that. Obviously, you, you can't be a Christian unless you know who Christ is and you trust him. And so salvation is always put in these terms in the Word of God. It is the cross of Christ, it is the death of Christ, and then it is the resurrection of Christ. Those are the defining points of our Christianity. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so when we talk about salvation, our focus is always on the work of Christ. And through this, Christians become familiar because he's the person of the Godhead who performs these these redemptive acts of God. We're also familiar with the Father. Most Christians probably don't know as much about the Father, but we do know that Jesus often spoke of him. We're told that he is a loving Father, for God so loved the world, and Jesus called him his Father. We're told that uh, he had this great love for mankind, that he would send his own son into the world. But since the focus of Scripture is Christ, we don't know as much about the Father. In fact, he's referred to that way in the Old Testament. When we get to heaven, also the manifestation that we will see of God is Jesus Christ. That's how we'll know God when we get to heaven. Well, there's no worry about, though, About that because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the Father remains a little bit of a mystery to us 
a little bit more than the sun, much more than the sun. But the person of the Godhead, though, that is the most confusing to the most people is the Holy Spirit. We would think that after 2,000 years of church history, this wouldn't be true, that we'd have a much better handle on who the Holy Spirit is just by looking at the Scriptures and studying them thoroughly. But I've shown you, and you may remember some quotes that I gave you from some great Christian leaders of the past who said there wasn't very much taught about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And they lamented this fact, and they were determined to do something about it. And so in the 17th and 18th centuries, in the heyday of the Puritans, there was quite a bit of preaching about the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of my favorite books of that era is the Puritan John Flavel's collection of sermons entitled The Method of Grace. And the byline of his book is How the Holy Spirit Works. And interestingly, his collection of sermons echoes John 16:13 that we read a moment ago and John 14:26. John 16:13, howbeit when he the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. In the 14th chapter, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now the work of the Holy Spirit, coming from the mouth of Jesus himself, his work is to magnify Christ. Flavel in his sermons recognized the Holy Spirit's magnification of the work of Christ. And he makes that point repeatedly in eloquent fashion. Those of you who've read Puritans, and you know the, the language is lofty. Uh, it's, it's very encouraging. It lifts you as you read it. And so it is the Holy Spirit's intent, knowing who he is and what Christ said of him, it is his intent not to be taken out of his place and to put more focus on him than Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that he is inferior. He is a person in the Godhead. Neither does it mean that we shouldn't learn about him. Certainly we should. But when we learn about him, we're right only when we take a scriptural approach to his work. Well, this has become a great problem, one of the great problems about understanding him. In the late 19th century, George Smeaton complained that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was almost completely ignored. But then, in the beginning of the 20th century, things began to change. And over the next 100 years, the Holy Spirit was front and center in the teachings of those who claimed special miracle gifts and works of the Spirit that the Spirit does not do. Now, it's bad to take away from the works of the Spirit. And it is equally bad, perhaps it is even worse, to make outlandish claims about what the Holy Spirit does. Much of the stuff that goes on today is not the Spirit's work. And so we come to this unhappy negative statement, the Holy Spirit is abused. In Matthew chapter 12, there was a huge intentional mix-up about what the Holy Spirit was doing. Jesus was casting out demons. The Pharisees had no answer for his power. They couldn't admit that he was from God because doing so would mean that they would lose their influence, uh, that influence and that control that they had over the people. Actually, I think you might call it a stranglehold that they had on religion. 
So they had to explain his power away, and they claimed that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus said that he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. And then he told them that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying the Holy Spirit's works were the works of Satan. Now you flip that around 180 degrees and we can see that the dynamic has changed because today it is claimed that the works of Satan are actually the Holy Spirit's works. Those who claim it say that the Spirit does it But it surely must be a blasphemous thing, an abusive thing, to take the evil of Satan and say that it belongs to the Holy Spirit. And I think that you need to understand that. There are many outlandish practices of the charismatics that are not works of the Holy Spirit. And they can only come from one other place, and that is from the devil himself. They must be the works of Satan. Now, I, for one, would never want to be guilty of claiming the Holy Spirit does works that should be attributed to Satan. So we're going to talk a little bit about this and what's going on today and claims that are made by charismatics because if there's any group that has contributed more to the confusion of the Holy Spirit's work, I don't know who that would be. Now, I want to make this very important point as we begin this part of our study. And I want you to note this on your listening sheet today. Knowledge of the Holy Spirit's work is achieved through Scripture. Where do we learn about the Holy Spirit and what he does? Knowledge of the Holy Spirit's work is achieved through Scripture. There's only one way that we can distinguish between the true works of the Spirit and the false works of Satan, and that is by the Scriptures. In last week's message, that was one of our main points, going to the Scripture. And as we look closely at this part of our subject, we must keep this in mind. The only authority that we have, the only authority that we have for faith and practice is the inspired word of God. The charismatic movement claims new revelation. But new revelation is subjective. It can't be verified. The scriptures show us there is no new revelation, and thus we go by the We must go by the completed word of God as the only source of truth. And this is very important because since the time of the apostles, there has been no other way that you could tell the false from the truth. Satan is the great counterfeiter. He mimics the works of God. He's adept at fooling people. He makes the false seem true. Now, in in the early church, before the Bible was finished writing, God gave some the gift of discerning Spirits, discerning God's works from Satan's works. Now, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 so you can see this. In the days of the apostles, the miracle gifts were still operating. And it's interesting that in the list of the miracle gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said that God included another unique gift among them. Let's begin reading in verse number 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. 
to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work with that one and the self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now you see this list of, of miracle gifts, and in the middle there, verse number 10, there's this special gift called discerning of spirits. Now in that time there, there were many that claimed that they could do the same works that the apostles did. As we read last week, John said there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. So the, the more that the real gifts of the Spirit were being used, the more opportunity there was for Satan to mimic these gifts. So the apostles had this power of discernment, and Peter used that in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. He was able to see through them when they made their false claims. In Acts chapter 13, there was a man named Elymas, and he was a sorcerer. And the scripture says that Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost. And what Paul did was to root this man out. And notice that Paul was none too kind about his activities. In the ninth verse of Acts 13, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And the language there indicates that Elymas may well have been guilty of trying to destroy the doctrines of the faith, doing something different from what the Apostle Paul did. He did all of this through tricks of sorcery. He did the works of Satan and tried to convince the people that he was right and that he was doing the works of God. And how much different is that from what goes on today? So the apostles had had this power to discern spirits. And by reading 1 Corinthians 12, we know that there may be others. They were given the gift as well. And what was God doing through that discernment? Well, he was safeguarding the church against all these false teachers. But as the gifts declined, and and we'll make this point more later, as the gifts declined, the the gift of discernment declined as well. And this is because there there was no more need for it. Does that mean there's no more false prophets in the world? Well, certainly not. No, there are many more. There are even thousands more of them today. How then, without the gift of discernment, how do we know who's right and who's wrong? Well, we only know one way. And you don't need a special gift for it. You need the Word of God. We go to the Scriptures, and when they were complete, we had all of God's revelation. It was established for all time. There is the criteria, the Word of God, for distinguishing the true from the false. Now, if you need another avenue of proof that there is no new, 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 no new revelation, then you can look to this argument. If there is more revelation and God still gives it, and if the miracle gifts are still working, then we would also have to say, well, the gift of discernment works as well. It's there in that list. We must have this special gift of discernment. And so I can go to the charismatic that says that he has the power of miracle gifts, and I can say to him, I have the gift of discerning spirits. And I say that yours is bogus. I say that you are a sham. I say that you are a liar and a counterfeit. I say you're full of all subtlety and all mischief, and you are a child of the devil. I say you are the enemy of all righteousness, and you pervert the right ways of the Lord. Then what would he say? Who knows who's telling the truth? Do you see what the problem is when there is no concrete standard to find the truth? 
And this is one of the reasons before the Bible was completed, you needed this gift of discerning spirits. You must have the apostles of the Lord at that time that are writing Scripture under the direct inspiration of God. They had to be the ones to tell us who's telling the truth and who is not. But what are we absent today? We don't have any apostles. There's no one to affirm the gifts that they've passed away, have passed away. No, the completed Bible is what they left for us as the infallible guide, the source of faith and practice. And so we go to the Bible to verify claims that are made about the Holy Spirit's activity. Now we're going to discuss the gifts that are claimed, but before we do, we need to see what the Scripture says about the cessation of these gifts. And I confidently make this claim. I do believe it's scriptural. Note this. The extraordinary gifts of the Spirit have ceased. The extraordinary gifts of the Spirit have ceased. If you want to know the technical term for it, I am a cessationist. I believe the gifts have ceased. And there are two lines of proof to show this. The first and the most important is the scriptural proof. The scriptures prove these gifts no longer operate. Now, the one gift that stands out above all the others is the gift of tongues. I mean, I I don't care what flavor of charismatic that you talk to, tongues is the main thing. Now, we'll talk more about tongues later messages, but for now, if I can prove to you that the gift of tongues is no longer here, then we can pull in all the other miracle gifts with it. Now, there's a long line of proof here, and I'm just giving you a little bit of the argument but the gift of tongues, this, this is the lifeblood of the charismatic movement. There are some of them who say there is no salvation without speaking in tongues because this gift is the evidence of salvation. Others don't go that far. They say some, if you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. Others don't go that far. But they claim that a Christian who speaks in tongues lives on a greater plane of spirituality than one that doesn't. That would be, I think, probably all of you that I know at least in here, you would be on a lower spiritual plane. Well, I found this interesting comment in the official documentation of the beliefs of the Assemblies of God, and I'm just quoting to you from what they say. There are those who give testimony to a dynamic and life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit who have never spoken in tongues. Nevertheless, it cannot be said that they are filled with the Spirit in the New Testament sense of the term. This is an essential link between that experience and speaking in other tongues, or there is an essential link. We affirm and teach this truth because it is based upon the pattern from God's Word. We do not look upon speaking in tongues as proof of superior spirituality. It simply is a precious promise written in God's Word and fulfilled in our lives. To ignore it is to miss a great blessing and come short of the New Testament pattern. I don't know how much attention you paid to what I just read. This is what I call speaking out of both sides of your mouth. From one side of the mouth, they say, We do not look upon speaking in tongues as proof of superior spirituality. From the other side of their mouth, they say, If you don't speak with tongues, you are not filled with the Spirit. And you miss a great blessing and come short of the New Testament pattern. How do you reconcile those two statements? How can you say that speaking in tongues means that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, say it's not evidence of higher spirituality, superior spirituality? If that's so, then why did Paul say be filled with the Spirit? Isn't that a better position than not being filled? Otherwise, why would Paul even mention this? 
Well, that's the convoluted reasoning of those who try to justify a practice that doesn't operate today. So what does the Bible say about it? Let me call your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the great chapter on love in which Paul speaks of love as the greatest expression of spirituality. And notice that it comes in the context of the miracle gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. Love is above all spiritual gifts. And you can have all the other spiritual gifts, but if you don't have the love of Christ in your heart and love for others, Paul said, you're just kidding yourself about being a good Christian. Then he talks about the endurance of love. Love will never cease. Love will be the hallmark of heaven. I mean, what would heaven be if there is no love? Love will be forever. Love is our attachment to God. So if there is no love in heaven, there is no God in heaven. Now, he's using that as a comparison. Love is enduring. It's always enduring. But he says spiritual gifts will cease. They will pass out of existence. And so what, what would you choose? Would you choose the temporary gift or would you choose the eternal gift? Well, obviously, love is better because it doesn't cease. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, the temporary gifts of the Spirit is not Paul's main teaching. It's not the main teaching. The superiority of love, that's the main teaching. But we still get this doctrinal truth in a scriptural statement about the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. So what does 1 Corinthians 13 say? In the 8th verse, it says, Charity, that is love. We're reading King James now. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Let me just spend just a second here on 9 and 10. For we know in part, that is, the apostles have not finished writing the word. They don't have all the inspiration of the Spirit yet to complete it. We know in part... And we prophesy in part, so the prophecies aren't perfect because the Word of God is not complete yet. They're still getting that inspiration. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. In other words, when the Bible is completed, we don't need these things anymore. Well, you can imagine the Charismatics have an answer for this. Uh, Their answer is, no, 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 this is talking about heaven This is talking about when Jesus comes back and we all go to heaven. And when we go to heaven, there's no more need for these gifts. But they will not cease until then because we need them now. Well, we take a closer look at these verses. Is it talking about heaven? Look at the last part of verse 8. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now that's a peculiar thing, isn't it? Knowledge will vanish away. What do you think about that? Will your knowledge in heaven be more or less than what you know now? I don't know about you, but there are many questions that I want answered. On Sunday afternoons in our class, I get questions sometimes that I can't answer. And so I need to say, I I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a definitive answer on that. And when I answer a question, I wish that I could do a better job because I'm limited to the time that I've spent studying God's Word, uh, uh, the knowledge of Scripture that I have. And in this part of my life, I've had a lifetime of studying Scripture, and I still don't know all the answers. And so I think, well, if I have questions myself, then you must have a lot of questions that you don't know. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the forum class. So what do you think? Will you go to heaven and remain ignorant? If knowledge ceases, then you have a real problem. Now, to be fair about this, and I know exactly 
how this is interpreted. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent anyone, but the knowledge spoken of here is the, the special gifting of the Holy Spirit to know what a person hasn't learned. It also applies to the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit poured knowledge into the apostles that they couldn't know without special enlightenment. Well, that's the real definition of it. But does it help any? Does it help the charismatic any? No, it only makes their interpretation worse because the new knowledge that we have in heaven is all that kind of stuff. It's all the things that we don't know. We will know without spending time learning it. God will just put his knowledge in because to know Christ more is to love him more. God populates heaven with people that love him supremely. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Do you want to love him more than you do now? Well, none of us is perfect in love. We'll receive more knowledge in heaven that will cause us to love God more. He'll give us this knowledge supernaturally. So you won't find some people in heaven that are in the first grade of divinity school. There's not some that are in the sixth grade and some in the twelfth grade. No, no. When we get to heaven, all of us will have perfect knowledge of Christ. And for this very simple reason, to know him is to love him. To to know him is to love him. And this is the reason for you to study the word of God now. Because the more that you know about him, the more that you will love him. Spend more time in his word. The passage can't be talking about heaven. These gifts ceased. Supernatural knowledge is not a gift that anyone has today. Prophecy is not a gift that we have today. The gift of tongues is not a gift that we have today. Those gifts ceased when they were no longer necessary. They became unnecessary when we received the completed word of God. And we'll talk more about that later. They ceased. Maybe they'll be resumed in another time, perhaps in the millennium. There are people who believe that the gifts will be back during the millennium, but that's a different time. It's not our time. That's a different dispensation. That's not now. So what's going on with those who practice these gifts today? They go against the Scripture. If they speak in tongues, that is, whatever they call tongues, then what causes it? Well, I don't need a special gift of spiritual discernment to tell you because I have scriptural proof. I just read the scriptures. Well, we're running out of time, and um, I want us to take a look at another avenue of proof that spiritual gifts have ceased. This, this argument is the historical proof. The historical proof takes us back to the first century, and it stretches throughout church history until we get to the 20th century when the charismatics kicked up this false doctrine that spiritual gifts are still working. And so they say, all that you really need, what you, what you need is just the right amount of the Holy Spirit, then you can just jabber away. Well, we go right to the Bible, and we start to find the cessation of the miracle gifts. Now let's stick with the, with the tongues for a moment because this is the one that they say is the real proof of living according to the New Testament pattern. So we have to ask this question. Are tongues the New Testament pattern? Well, we go to the book of Acts, which is the New Testament's book of history. Acts is the history of the growth of the church in the first century. The Old Testament has its historical books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, so on. Acts is the New Testament's historical book. Now keep in mind, the Charismatics use tongues as evidence the Holy Spirit is working in the Christian life. 
Some, as I said, say that salvation is dependent upon it. The AGs, Assemblies of God, say, well, there's a great blessing missed if you don't speak in tongues. But did you know in the whole history of the book of Acts, there are only three instances of speaking in tongues. These were, or there were thousands of people that were saved, but only three recorded instances in all the history of Acts where people spoke in tongues. The first one you know very well. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit accredited the church, gave the church its power. And so we can say when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and they spoke with tongues, that was the accreditation, accreditation put upon the Jewish church. They were all Jews. The second time we find it is in Acts chapter 10 when Peter went to preach to the Gentile Cornelius. And there in that passage it tells us that the light gift of tongues was given to the Jews that was given to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, also came upon the household of Cornelius. And so this proved to Peter and the apostles that the Gentiles would be in the included in the church. So there we find the approval of the Gentile church. The third time is in the book of Acts, chapter 19. This was a peculiar incident. It was different. And you know this because Acts 19 is about those same believers that we talked about so much in the beginning of this series, they had the baptism of John. You remember that? And they, and they uh, didn't know that the Holy Spirit of come, had, had come. So let me just back up to that passage in case you've forgotten it. I'll just read a part of it. You're very familiar with the questions and answers that are found in verse number 2. So I'm going to go a little bit further down in the passage to verses 5 and 6. Paul explained to them about the Holy Spirit. Then the scripture says... In verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, here's a peculiar thing about the passage. They didn't speak with tongues until Paul laid his hands on them. Now, I'm of the opinion that rather than tongues being the normal thing for all Christians to do. I think the apostle had to be there. I think an apostle had to be there to sanction the gift. He had to witness it and lay hands on them. In the second chapter, it happened when all the apostles were there. They were the first to speak in tongues. In Acts chapter 10, on the household of Cornelius, Peter was there. He was the apostle that was present. Here in Acts 19, we find Paul is the apostle who is there. Now, folks, then, in the entire book of Acts, the history of the church in the first century, those are the only times. If it was so prominent and it was so necessary and it was a pattern for New Testament believers, then why don't we see the New Testament covered up with this? Why don't we see it everywhere? Now, notice in the scripture in Acts 2, immediately after Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved, This is what it says. Now, this is not on your listening sheet. This is a late addition to my message. I decided to put this in. Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And they all spake with tongues and magnified God. No, that last phrase is not in there. They didn't continue speaking in tongues. That would have been ordinary, wouldn't it? If that's the way you receive blessings from God, wouldn't that be the ordinary thing to do? Oh, the apostles didn't preach it. They didn't encourage it. They didn't do it. No part of Acts 
says speaking in tongues was a pattern for Christians. Now this is, this is one proof in the New Testament. But let's notice something else even more damaging to the charismatics. There is only one book in the New Testament besides Acts that mentions speaking in tongues. Paul wrote at least 13 books in the New Testament, maybe 14 if you include Hebrews. He was the great apostle of church doctrine, and yet tongues is mentioned in only one book, and that is 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spent time cleaning up the practice, preaching against the abuse of tongues, rather than telling them, all of you should be doing this all of the time. Now, 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest of the New Testament epistles, one of the earliest of Paul's letters. Uh, It makes no mention of speaking in tongues in none of the other letters that he wrote. And let me show you something about one of his books, the book of Galatians. Paul had a perfect opportunity to bring up tongues. In chapter 3 of Galatians, he, he hammers on the Galatian church about this, this ignorance, the stupidity of falling into a, in a, into a trap of works justification. And in the beginning of the third chapter, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Right there, Paul could have said, Did you speak in tongues by the hearing of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, wouldn't that have been a good argument? That would be a great argument. If tongues are the best evidence of salvation, it's a New Testament pattern, wouldn't their speaking in tongues, wouldn't that seal the deal in his argument? But he doesn't mention tongues. And you follow that through to the fifth chapter. When you get into the fruits of the Spirit, there are no miracle gifts mentioned among them. There are no tongues found there. In no other book does Paul mention tongues. Peter does not mention it. James does not mention it. And that seems to be a problem if it's a New Testament pattern. If Christians miss a blessing by not speaking in tongues, then surely the writers of the New Testament would pound away on this and they would say, pray for this gift. Keep praying for this gift. Don't you think they would do it? This is where you're going to get your blessing. Pray for the gift of tongues. If this is the evidence and everybody was doing it, why not make mention of it? Why doesn't somebody say, now the reason, the reason that you are not fruitful in your Christian life, the reason that you don't have power with God, the reason is because you have not sought and you have not practiced the gift of tongues. In all the admonishments of the Christian life, of all the enumerated failures that we find in the New Testament, not once does it mention tongues. Why? Well, there's a good reason. It wasn't the normal pattern, and the gift was already fading away. Most likely it was already gone by the the time the rest of the New Testament was written. Certainly by the time of the last apostle, who was John, it was no more. And 1 Corinthians is just one huge stopping point. That 13th chapter, when you get out of the first century, this, this thing just practically disappears from church history. There's only slight references to it in hundreds of years, and those are ascribed mostly to heretics and lunatics. Now, I mentioned the Puritans in the first part of the message. They recovered uh, some teaching on the Holy Spirit. There was no group like them or since them except the apostles. They taught consistently on this sanctification of the Spirit and how that's lived out. 
Their legacy is still in our vocabulary, as we call strict holiness, or people do, they call that puritanical. When you, when you try to live a separated, sacrificed life for Christ, they say, you're puritanical. You know something about the Puritans? You can scour their writings, read their history. They're the godliest people that walked on the face of the earth, and they never spoke in tongues. Such an idea would be so preposterous to them that they would have put the perpetrators in the stocks. And you know the Puritan history. They'd burn them at the stake. I don't recommend that. There's too much danger of a wildfire. So witches and, and warlocks, that's what they would call the charismatics. Why? Because all that stuff is the devil's work, not the Holy Spirit's. They abuse the Spirit by claiming they do his work. So this is where we're, where we're going with this topic of abuse. We'll look at it more. We'll talk about some of the fantastic claims and why it's chaos and confusion and it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. We want no part of that. We, we don't want to get anywhere near to it. Satan counterfeits, and this is the reason we must ask, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What are his works? Well, I do want to conclude today with a slight disclaimer. There is, there is no hatred among us for charismatics. They are deceived, just like many others. They rely on, they should rely on objective truth rather than subjective emotional experiences. But on the other hand, I would say we do in fact hate their doctrine. It's probably the most damaging falsehood in the history of Christianity. And it's sad to make this claim, but it, it spreads faster than the truth can keep up with it. Because of the different forms of media, the ability to reach the world in seconds, this just goes out all over the whole world. So it, it permeates the face of this earth. Now you may think, well, Pastor Smith, he is far less charitable than others on this subject. Some disagree with this, but without much alarm. I disagree with it with much alarm. If people base the evidence of their salvation on the ability to speak in tongues... They don't have the correct doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And they don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a parallel to that. For others who dabble with it, and they're indifferent about it, some who may not practice it, but they say, well, it's okay, they allow the possibility. All I can say to that is fire taken into the belly will destroy. Salvation's a serious matter, folks. There's no salvation in our works, no matter what they are. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. God said, look unto me and be ye saved. Blessed be God for sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola scriptura. To God alone be the glory. Say soli deo gloria. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the truth that we receive from it. We know, Father, the only place that we can go to find truth, to know what you have to say to us today is through your infallible, inspired word. We thank you, Father, that you left your word for us to read. It's the most valuable thing that we have in this entire world. Through it we find hope, through it we find life, through it we find the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who magnifies him. Thank you, Father, for salvation that we have in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today who hasn't received you as Savior, we pray that your Holy Spirit will convict the heart, open up their eyes of understanding, and draw them to you so they may be saved. 
Christians who are here. Help us to stand on your truth, to tell the truth whenever we encounter falsehoods. May we be brave enough to do it. We pray, Father, that we'll give the truth in love, realizing that people die and go to hell without Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thank you again today. Bless us in our fellowship today. And we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.